Alright you guys, Revelation chapter 5 tonight, Revelation chapter 5 tonight. Please, yeah, please open up your Bible to the 5th chapter of Revelation if you have it with you. You know, we, we spend a good amount of time, we spend a good amount of time. Hey, uh, Sam, are you guys good? So, we spent a good amount of time uh, wondering what life in heaven will be like. And, and what life in the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. What we'll be able to do, what we won't be able to do. And it's good that we do that, actually. Uh, that we get to think about those things and ponder about what those things will be like. Uh, obviously, I mean, a, a main reason for that is we're going to spend much more time in that state or that existence than we do in these, with these lives that we are currently living. Most people alive now are going to live for about, you know, on average, about 70 years. They'll get to experience life in this earth about, around 70 years. And while the grace of God, the kind providence of God is certainly at play in everyone's life at more places than we realize or at more places than we acknowledge, it's true that we're also met with trials and suffering and death during this season of existence that we are currently in. Those kinds of things that, character, that are characteristic of this age we are living in while we wait for the second coming of Christ. Suffering, trials, and death. And to put it bluntly, those things suck. Nobody enjoys those things at all. Um, we know that God uses them for good, and he purposes good from them for us. But in the moment of trial, in the moment of suffering, those aren't, we don't see those as good moments. And that's part of the reason we like thinking of the age to come. Because when that time comes, all those things, trial, suffering, death, they will all be a thing of the past. They'll be a distant memory. But even in the midst of trials and suffering and death, God has given to us a gracious source of joy and comfort. He's given to us Revelation 4 and 5. The Apostle John, in this here, what he's describing is the, the second of seven vision scenes, all within that one larger vision, which is the whole book of Revelation. He's shown the throne room of God in heaven. And as much as we would have liked for him to give us a literal description of what it looks like and what everyone is doing, that's not what he does. Instead, he gives us this symbolic vision of God's sovereignty over all time. And first, in chapter 4, the focus is on God's sovereignty over all of creation. And now in chapter 5, that focus changes just slightly. And now it's his sovereignty in redemption to his purposes and intentions in light of his plan to save people through the gospel. But these things, uh, awareness and knowledge of God's sovereignty in, uh, in creation and in redemption, is what the church needs to face the trials of suffering and death and just trials in general. Not having all the details of the life to come will be like, uh, that's not what we truly need here now, even though we want to know those things. I mean, I want to know those things. I, I like to think about what it's going to be like myself. But a deeper, what we really need in the face of trials and suffering is a deeper knowledge and sense of knowing the Lord and resting in Him. Those are the things that will help us uh, when we are having to deal with things that are you know, basically common to mankind in this age. And so let's read the chapter because this is the second half of that heavenly throne room vision. We're going to read all of chapter 5, but, um, so we see the whole thing, but we're not going to be able to consider everything in it tonight. So the reading, 
the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to look into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's, let's pray and ask for his help and understanding. Lord God, we do thank you for your word and for giving this magnificent revelation and vision to John that he might record for, it, for us these things that certainly um, those seven churches from chapters 2 and 3 we're in need of hearing, as well as we know that we are in need of hearing these things as well. And we pray that you'd help us to make sense of what is said here, Lord. We know there, there was a lot of symbolic imagery in that, and though we won't get to it all tonight, we pray that you would help us understand what is before us for this evening so that we might have a greater sense of awe and reverence and love for who it is that you are and what it is that you have done to you be all glory and praise. We are grateful even to know that we will be able to join into, into that, that new song that was sung for the Lamb. Uh, we need you, Jesus, and we need you, Holy Spirit, for understanding it right now. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, remember, uh, this is the continuation of the vision that John started to give in, cha- in chapter 4. And he's given God's people a heavenly perspective of something that is meant to encourage them in light of the trials that are before them. So if you remember at the start of chapter 6, I was saying before that we are going to be introduced to the types of events that will be common to this age. So each of the seven seals on this scroll that we read about all refer to something. Eventually, uh, we're going to read about seven trumpets, which means something. Seven bowls, which also mean a very similar thing. Uh, As well as a discourse about 
what John calls a woman and a dragon, which actually concerns the first coming of Christ, a past event for John at the time of him writing this, but necessary, of course, because without the first coming of Christ, there would be no second coming of Christ. And, and so that's setting up, that first coming of Christ is setting the stage up for, the, for God's redemptive plans that take place during this present age. And he's also going to speak about, in, in coming chapters, a great prostitute and a beast. Uh, something called Babylon the Great, and a number of other things that speak to the trials of the church and, and individual Christians, what they will face. And so the heavenly scene that John is describing here in chapter 4 chapter 5 is designed to give comfort and to give encouragement to churches living in this age, to Christians living in this age, which of course would include those seven that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, those were Christians that the risen Lord Jesus had direct words of encouragement, promise, and admonishment for, as well as warning for their enemies. And while Christians on earth must face the slanderous accusations of those who oppose the gospel, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of that right now, even in our time, with, like, for example, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, where people are saying things about Christians that aren't true of us because of a stance that we hold based on, on life. Um, also, while people struggle to, while churches in, in this age struggle to avoid compromise with the spirit of the age, and again, we're, we're seeing that as well, a lot of that right now, like within the SBC and the acceptance of women elders and pastors, as well as a third category, um, which this vision is helping with, which is to help them while they fight against those pagan influences surrounding them, and while they struggle against the beast, which at this point in writing the letter of Revelation was the satanically empowered uh, Roman government, which was putting Christians to death at certain places who didn't acknowledge the divinity of Caesar, and which also prevented them from buying and selling. And uh, we've even experienced a little bit of that ourselves with the COVID lockdowns that the state was trying to impose upon the church. Not nearly as severe as what Christians you know, 2,000, nearly 2,000 years ago, we're experiencing. But still, nevertheless, it's in that same vein of trial. And so, um, you know, that reality should even make us thankful and joyful for the time that we're living in now, where it's not as difficult of a matter for us. And so, John now gives these same Christians that were having to go through all those things, which we are also going through in in different but similar ways, he gives them and us a glimpse of heaven. The purpose of the vision is no doubt to remind Christians that in, in the midst of their struggles against their earthly foes, that God's will is still being done in heaven, and that one day God's will will also be done here upon the earth. And so in Revelation 4, John's focus was on the one who sits upon the throne. Ezekiel and Isaiah had similar visions, and just like it is here, those visions were a source of encouragement for them in light of the life and ministry that they were being called to by God. Because as it, as it is, God, God is the one who is sovereign over all creation. And so now in chapter 5, the focus is on the Lamb who was slain and who alone is worthy to open up the scroll that we read about. Pastor Riddlebarger notes that not only is the Lamb worthy to do this, but the Lamb has also already triumphed over Satan. He's done that at the cross. And one day the Lamb's triumph over Satan upon the cross will extend to the whole earth and the end of the redemptive drama which is unfolding before us satan and his henchmen and all who follow him will be cast into the lake of fire never to torment god's people again and the whole church 
will live with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for all of eternity, free from trial, free from suffering, and free from death. So these things that we're seeing here in chapter 4 and chapter 5 are very, 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 very important for Christians to grasp and to hold on to. And so as I've already said, the focus here in chapter 5 is, is changing now to the Lamb of God rather than God the Father sitting upon the throne. But before we're introduced to this central and focal character, uh, the Lamb of God who is none other than Christ Jesus, we are first introduced to the reason as to why the Lamb is going to be focused upon. And that is this mysterious scroll that is in the hand of the Father. Uh, because it is, it is Christ Jesus that the Lamb that is alone is worthy to open the seven seals on the scrolls, which is subject matter discussed in Revelation 6, 7, and 8. At the very beginning of 8, the verse sentence of 8 at least. And so that's all being set up here. Uh, so then verse 1 in chapter 5. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll. Now, of course, you know, as we discussed before, John is seeing a symbolic vision here. He's not giving us a literal picture. And I know it's hard to kind of get our minds around that, that aspect. Uh, we can't help ourselves from doing that. But it should be really clear that, this isn't, that that's not what we're supposed to be doing when we get to verse 6. And there's like a, a lamb slain standing with seven eyes and seven horns. Right? At this junction, though, it's a little bit more difficult to not try to think, oh, there's physically God sitting on the throne and holding a scroll in his hand. Even here at verse 1, though, this is an anthropomorphism. And so as the children's catechism says, you know, God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like a man. But the point in saying that this scroll is in, there is a point as to why it says that the scroll is in his right hand. For one, the right hand of the Father is associated with Christ. Christ Jesus in his exaltation is at the right hand of the Father. That is good for us to know, isn't it? Uh, the one who mediates for us, the one who intercedes for us, who, who lives to make intercession for us, he, the, letter, the author to the letter of the Hebrews says, he's there at the right hand of the Father. He's near the Father. He's with the Father. He has equal status with the Father. He is, in fact, God. Psalm 110, 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That verse in Psalm 110 is the most repeated, or one of the most repeated verses from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Okay, and it's speaking about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. 1 Peter 3.22, this is speaking about, says, who, meaning Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Hebrews 1.3 Speaking about Jesus again, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. And so right away, even here in this fifth chapter of Revelation, we should be thinking about how the focus is changing from the Father to the Son, to Christ, the Redeemer, the Justifier, the Savior. Savior. But further... By pointing out the right hand here, God is communicating to us his power and his protection over his people. Over and over in scripture is the right hand of God associated with the comfort of his people as well as the wrath, his wrath against his enemies. So Psalm 118, verse 15 to 16, says, Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. 
The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Exodus fifteen sixteen. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Isaiah forty one ten. Fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this scroll being mentioned as being in the right hand of him on the throne should already be making us think of these things. The the association to Christ who's at the right hand of the Father and God's power and his comfort and even his wrath against his enemies. There is this unique correlation to Christ who is at the right hand of the Father on the throne. And that scroll is also then associated with events that are going to be terrible for the enemies of God. But for God's people, those events are not going to separate us from God. He will uphold us with his righteous right hand through them. As D.A. Carson calls this scroll, or or not as, but D.A. Carson calls this scroll the book of blessing and cursing. Uh, you know, describing the events that take place in the world for all people. Some are receiving blessing for, because of their union with Christ, while others are receiving curse, curses because of the sin that they inherited from Adam and their own willful rebellion towards God as well. Uh, Beale, he just refers to, to this scroll as a book of judgment because the emphasis on the seals that, you're, that you'll see in chapters 6 through 8, that kind of seems too simplistic to me really. Um, Another commentator says that it's a scroll of divine judgment, salvation, and restoration, seeing then that the scroll is containing everything that the whole book of Revelation speaks about. And that, I, I think, is more fitting, that this scroll, which can only be opened by the Lamb who was slain, is speaking about everything in God's redemptive plan which would also include the details of the, very, of the last two chapters of the book of Revelation and how life will be once Christ returns and defeats death once and for all. William Hendrickson says, The scroll represents God's eternal plan, his decree, which is all comprehensive. It symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history and concerning all creatures in all ages in all of eternity. So the scroll, then, is is vast in its symbolic representation. And note that it's written within and on the back. Now, writing within the scroll is very common. I mean, the message is protected inside the scroll. It couldn't be seen, excuse me, it couldn't be seen until the scroll was opened up. But this scroll was written on both sides. In ancient times, if you were poor, you would do that perhaps. Because rather than purchasing a second scroll or a, a longer scroll, you would just use both sides of the scroll that you had. But God Almighty certainly isn't poor, so that shouldn't be why we think that it has writing on both sides. And further, we are being confronted with symbolism again here in the vision. On the one hand, um, this might be a reference, or it probably is intended to remind us of the scroll of the prophet Ezekiel that he had in the opening chapters of his prophetic vision. Because Ezekiel was to preach the contents written upon the scroll to the people of Israel, he was commanded to eat the scroll. Do you remember that in Ezekiel? It's in the early part of his book. 
Uh, and that was a symbolic act pointing to his preparation to preach the contents of it. It's Ezekiel 2, 9 through 10. It says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. So very similar. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me and had writing on the front and on the back. And they were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Now, the scroll that Ezekiel saw is not the same scroll that, that John is seeing here. Ezekiel's was specific to the message that God had for Israel as they related to him within the Old Covenant. And notice Ezekiel's scroll wasn't sealed either, but the scroll which John sees is sealed with, with seven stamps on it, seven seals. And someone who is worthy needs to be found to open it. And so that sets in motion this great drama of the chapter where John's lament is that no one is worthy to open the scroll. And I actually think that we're made to think of Daniel's, Daniel here actually, Turn with me to, to Daniel chapter 12. You keep your finger in Revelation 5. Daniel chapter 12. You go back if you see Isaiah, you went too far, or Ezekiel, you went too far. So Daniel 12. I am... Um, this is a... This is a often debated passage, really, Daniel 12. Usually, like, even in Sunday school, when we were using that one um, Sunday school material to go through Daniel, it rarely ever touched on these types of things. It usually dealt with the famous stories in Daniel. The prophetic passages in Daniel are notoriously harder to deal with. And so I don't want to get into all of those weeds uh, this evening. I mean, we could have a whole sermon based off of this passage uh, about, like, who Michael is and the specific details of the timing at all. Often, what we get in the Old Testament with prophecy, by the way, it, about the redemptive work of Christ, is a, is a flattening out of his two comings. And I think that's actually what's happening here, that Daniel's in these first four verses, is speaking about the both comings of Christ, which obviously we know happen at different times, rather than just one coming, which was often uh, misconstrued or misunderstood by Old Covenant saints. So let's read this text really quick. So this is Daniel 12, 1 through 4. It says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who... And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So a lot of those things kind of even sound similar to things we've even read in the first uh, four chapters here, let alone this book or this scroll that was sealed or shut up. So with Daniel, it's, a, it's to shut up the scroll or the book means to close it. You know, it's not... To not reveal it. It's sealed. No one is yet ready or able to open it. And certainly the context of Daniel chapter 12 is redemption. It's deliverance. And so keep that in mind because we'll come, we're going to come back to it. But now there's another reason why this sealed scroll may be written on both sides. And I'll save that for just a moment as we, um, so we consider some historical background. Because I want there's something to notice about 
this holding of the scroll that doesn't come through in the English, but it does carry over, or it doesn't carry over into English, but it's there in the Greek. When we think of holding a scroll, you probably think of holding it like a baton. I know that's at least what I think in my mind, at least. You're holding a scroll, you're holding it like in a, in a clenched fist, uh, like, a, like, a, like a, a good grip or a clenched hand. Yeah, but it's not being read. It's sealed right now. It's, it's not even open. Um, and remember, this is a symbolic vision anyway, but in the Greek, the word that is, that's used to speak about it being in his right hand is, is a word that really means to rest upon the hand. And so this is a scroll that if it was like a literal picture that John was giving to us, we would see the father, uh, he'd be extending out his hand and he'd be holding the scroll in the palm of his hand with his hand open. That's really what is is being described here. But again, you know, God doesn't have a hand. That's an anthropomorphism. Um, he's, not, he's not describing what it literally looks like, but th- that's the word that is used. And so this, this scroll isn't, isn't contained with a tight grip. It's being offered. Who's going to open it? Who's going to be the one that can break the seals and give this information out? The scroll, that makes sense with what we read in verses 2 through 5. So there's this scroll sitting in the right hand of the Father, and the scroll is covered in writing all on the inside and all on the outside of it, and it's sealed with seven seals. So the historical background here. Um, people living in John's day would know immediately and grasp the significance of the fact that the scroll was sealed. I mean, the only way that we even know about scrolls is if we read about them in the Bible, we see them in movies or playing like some dorky video games or something like that. Uh, we don't really, you know, none of us has actually probably ever, you know, delivered a scroll to somebody, right? Nobody here has done that? Never. I don't think so. Um, sc- scrolls often served two functions in the first century. Uh, they were either official documents that, you know, had the, the king's or the, the person who charged his signet um, seal on it. And then also they were used to, as like a last will and testament. And so when an official document was sealed with wax, the seal was made with the author's official and personal mark, usually from, again, his signet ring or his official seal, so as to ensure that the authenticity of the words in the scroll were, uh, were his and that the authority belonged to him as well, too. So the seal not only ensured privacy, but also ensured that the one who had officially recognized authority could open the document and read its context. Yeah, Jonathan? What's the difference between like a, you said signet ring or just their royal seal? What's the difference I think a signet ring, I think it would be the same thing. Like a, a ring would just be, the, the emblem would be in the ring, and a, the other thing would just be like a stamp, you know. But they, would be, they would be the same Symbol, it would still be but, like to the king. It wouldn't be like of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. It would be. It would be declaring the one who's sealed its authority and responsibility. I guess you would say. And you see those seals on like official state documents, national documents. I don't know. Like, you mean like on Wiki, WikiLeaks or something? No, like your bachelor's degree has probably the California state seal on it. Okay. Yeah, those are like those are like those are like embossed. No, they're embossed paper. But it's the same same sort of a thing. Probably, yeah. Your birth certificate, yeah. Even um. Even something sometimes when you get something notarized, even as well sometimes. So a little bit different than here because this would probably be something of wax that's sealed. 
but rather than like an embossed uh, piece of paper. But a similar idea. So if the heavenly scroll that we're reading about here is the last will and testament, bless you, uh, that might explain the double-sided writing. That was a common Roman practice at the, at the time with legal documents. Um, and furthermore, a will in Roman culture had to be sealed by seven witnesses. Hence, you know, the seven seals here. Uh, the, the terms of such wills would be executed upon only upon the death of the, testat- of the testator, the one who is leaving the will, in other words. So hopefully that makes sense, right? All that that means is that, like, in my last will and testament, I leave things for my children, but they actually don't get those things until I die. Right? That's, what that, that's what it means. So the, the things that are contained in the last will and testament only become effective when the one who owns the will dies. So... In this case, yeah, I know. In this case, the seven seals contained in the scroll are to be opened by the lamb who was slain and who, by virtue of his death for his people, is reckoned to be worthy to do so. So then the lamb is not only the author of this heavenly scroll, but also, by virtue of his death, he alone is worthy to open it and ex- execute his instructions, which is a weird thing because if he's dead, then how is he allowed to open it? But what we know is that Christ died but is now living as well. And that implies something that we're going to have to look into the next time uh, when we have more time. But what is this mysterious scroll all about? And why is it that no one can be found who is worthy to open it? As we read in verse 2 two through 4, this fact causes John to just basically lose it. It's really interesting. He says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then verse 4, I began to weep, excuse me, weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. I mean, could you imagine? He's just like overcome with emotion. The scroll is obviously good, a good thing to him. The contents of it are, are good to know. But as he initially sees it, no one is worthy of opening it. How long did he cry for? How, I mean, weeping is usually, you would think of it as a very intense, serious thing. How long does that go on? We have no clue, no idea. And as we just saw from a moment ago, in verse 4 of Daniel 12, the, the angel tells Daniel, Daniel, shut up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Well, despite the angel's instructions, if you think back to... Daniel chapter 12, if we were to keep reading, we would see that Daniel was kind of confused about the angel's instructions. And so in verse 8, he says, what shall the outcome of these things be? And the angel replies, go your way, Daniel, because the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. And so those who are wise who understand are the same ones whom whom Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that they've been given ears to hear because the mystery of Christ was revealed by the apostles. And having been given ears to hear, it's time for the scroll to be opened now and its contents to be revealed to God's people who struggle upon the earth against the beast. People weren't ready. They, They weren't able to perceive everything that was contained in, this, in the scrolls back when the same information, it seems like, was given to Daniel. He was to, even Daniel himself was confused about it. But now, here in the New Testament, it's allowed to be opened up. They're, they're called to open it up. Daniel's time, or his prophecy, was to be sealed until the time of the end because the Old Testament saints could not have possibly understood how God would bring about the blessings of the Messianic age without a direct knowledge of the person and work of J- Jesus Christ. But with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, 
as now accomplished facts, the time of the end has finally come. And once Jesus Christ conquered death in the grave at, at the cross, human history has entered its final phase. Therefore, it is indeed time for that which was sealed in Daniel's day until the time of the end to be revealed. And now was that time, or 2,000 years ago was that time. And so with the coming of Christ, some 700 years after Daniel, that which was sealed was now ready to be opened. But we still have not answered the critical question, what is on this scroll and why is no one able to open it? And we're, gonna have, we're out of time for that, so we'll have to save that for next time. But one point of application for us to consider tonight. Uh, we live in the time of the new covenant. We're not in the old covenant. And it's a, it's a blessed time to be alive. One that I think we often overlook and we just take for granted. In the old covenant, people drew near to God through promises based on and hidden in what Christ would do in the new covenant. They did that through faithful obedience to the ceremonial system set up in the old covenant. Now, of course, that same system allowed for some in the community who weren't actually saved to approach God but only in the sense of a temporal blessing, not an eternal blessing, eternal salvation in view and things like that. And of course, when they didn't do that, God's curses were brought upon them. Now, that sort of an opportunity doesn't exist for people who aren't saved any longer. As John 3 says, people are condemned already because they have not believed in the, the only Son of God. Because the sin of Adam and the sin that they also commit is already condemning them. But much of God's plan of redemption was also hidden to those in the Old Covenant, even though they had this close relationship with the Lord. And what we are seeing here in this, the last book written in the New Testament, the last bit of inspired words that God gave to the church, is the final revealing of things that God desires for us to know. Obviously, there's a lot of doctrinal work that had to be worked out through all of this that the church needed to do after this. But Revelation is the final special revelation that we have. And in the account that we have tonight, we are seeing John being given an explanation of what life in this messianic age will be like. As w- from the point of heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and then here on the earth from 6 to 19. As well as some comments about what the new heavens and the new earth will be like in chapters 20, or 20, 21, and 22. And this is a benefit that we have in the gospel. The mystery of the Gentile inclusion into the promise of God and how we all live together in the community community of God after the resurrection and exaltation of Christ is contained here for us in the New Testament. The people of God didn't have the New Testament before you know, this last book of Revelation was written. That was, that's given to us here now in, this, in the New Covenant, in the time period of the New Covenant, this Messianic age. And because of the work of Christ, because of his work, the work of the Lamb who's worthy to open the scroll, we have better access to God now. Listen to the Apostle Paul. This is Ephesians 3, verse 7. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. But do you hear what he says here? That we now 
have boldness and access with confidence, which is something then that was lacking in the Old Covenant, even for people who were truly saved, because they still approached through, even though they had the same spirit indwelling them and they shared in the same blessings, those things were somewhat veiled. Even from Daniel, who had these great visions, was not able to understand as clearly as we are, have been given it to understand. Because we know now who Christ is and what he would do. Because we know that Jesus is true God and true man, which is, which is a hint as to what actually is being referred to as this is what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll. We'll talk about that next time. The reason why he's worthy to open the scroll is because he's true God and true man. That's why it's so important. If you get the doctrine of the hypostatic union wrong, well, then that's a, a, a heresy according to what the Bible teaches, right? That would cut you off from the truth as it is in Christ and from salvation because it's central to his ability to open uh, the, 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 this scroll that we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 5. And so because of who Jesus is, because he lived a holy life, because he was true God and he was therefore able to not sin and he had no desire to ever sin and he was born into this world under the law through the miraculous birth by the virgin, oh, through the virgin Mary and he lived as a true man, um, never once sinning and he went to the, the cross there and he paid and he died a death that he didn't deserve as a substitute, making atonement for those who were chosen in him, for those who would believe in him. Because he's, he did all of those things, and because we know that his sacrifice upon the cross was accepted because he didn't stay dead, he was raised on the third day, raised for our justification, we read in Romans, then we have boldness and access with confidence to go to God as the benefit that we have in the gospel. And you know, the saints in the Old Testament didn't have that, and so we should be very grateful to be alive and living in the time of the new covenant because of the, the freedoms and the, the joy that it provides to us. Not that, again, that people in the Old Covenant weren't enjoying a true relationship with God. They did. But we get to know it in a much greater way. And we should be thankful for that, friends. So let's, let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word, for being able to start to consider what is contained here in chapter 5. And we pray that for more understanding, Lord, that you would help us to rightly understand your word and to think about how we should then live. Um, because you, Lord, were worthy to open the scroll. And because you have done so, because you are the, the Lamb of God, slain from even before the foundation of the world, we have boldness and access to you through the faith that you have given to us. And so we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us so greatly and so completely. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, any, um, any questions or comments, things I could try to make more clear? <clears throat> this is a tough passage, you know. The seven seals were not there because the Romans did that, right? You no, know, but I think... Yeah. I think that the context is that they would know that it's... They would be familiar. So familiar with it, right? That's a historical background that we wouldn't know. Well, you think about that, the seven spirits of God, right? And it does talk about that again, even with the, um, the lamb as well. So it, it could be in reference to that and the, the completeness of the... So it's, it's in reference, again, yeah, to the church living in this messianic age, which those seven churches were symbolic of, some type of. All right. Good, good? All right.